Welcome to the Beer Before Glory podcast. I'm Justin Crosley. And I'm Matt Brunelson. And we are back with episode four, another in our exciting series on beer. Well, at least we get excited about it. And we're definitely excited about this one because we get to uh, drink and talk German beer, German lager, German hops with not a German, but I do believe he's an honorary German at this point. Our guest today is Eric Toft, and he's from Schoenram uh, Brewery. Did I did I get that close, that's, Eric? That's close enough. That's fine, yeah. <laughs> Schoenram. <laughs> yeah. Where, where's the brewery at, Eric? We're in the very southeast of Bavaria. Okay. Uh, bordered uh, very close to the border on two sides of, of the border of Austria, and just a little bit to the northwest of the city of Salzburg, Austria. Okay. So Beautiful. for people who know Munich, it's uh, with south, southeast of Munich, about 80 miles. Okay, got it. Beautiful region there. I've, I've been uh, multiple times through my career. And um, you're not from Germany. You're actually, I believe, from Wyoming, right? That's correct. Yeah, from uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. Where Is that I where you are right now? now. Okay. That's where I am now, yeah. Yeah, we got we got lucky because when I first talked to Eric about this, we we're going to have this nine hour difference. And one of us was going to be either suffering early in the morning or late at night. So we right. really got lucky <laughs> and caught Eric on holiday. And he was so kind to jump on board. And I must add, I am so pumped for this conversation because uh, I'm a longtime fan of Eric's work. And um, <laughs> not so long ago, I got to visit and spend some time right there at the source and oh my gosh these beers are incredible thanks matt oh, i can't wait to... that, that means a lot <laughs> when travel is allowed again <laughs> i can't oh, wait to go try some of this but at least we get to talk about it today and you know i guess eric i just wanted to start with with how it is that you you've ended up in germany brewing and i believe you've been there for something like 30 years now right yeah i went to germany in 1987 just after okay. I finished my, my bachelor's with the intent of like, trying to go to brewing school and, and then come back and start up my own brewery. So, so I did all that. I, I, well, I didn't, I didn't start my own brewery. I, I studied uh, geophysics in Colorado, uh, right next door to the Coors Brewing Company. So well, I started in 1983 and started home brewing in 1984. And of course, this was the time when little breweries started to open up. There was a Boulder Brewing Company. And of course, Sierra Nevada had already opened up in, 19, in 1979. And in the Pacific North, Northwest, primarily, there's some breweries opening up. Yeah, and so through my home brewing, uh, I really got into well, just beer in general and, and the brewing process. And when I was finished with my studies, I was faced with the option of um, going to the oil fields of Saudi Arabia, which is okay. why I got into geophysics. I wanted to spend the time in the mountains uh, mapping and looking for rocks uh, that's sort of how i imagine my life as a geophysicist so rather than uh go to saudi arabia i've decided to start my own brewery but rather than instead of uh just starting up a place as a novice brewer i decided to give germany a shot because i figured if you can learn the trade anywhere in the world it would be germany mm-hmm. and uh to learn it from you know from the ground up and then come back and start my own place so that's how, that's why I went to Germany. So I signed up for an intensive language course for a couple of months. And then I went knocking on doors to get an internship and finally found an internship in a brewery in, in, in southern Baden, well, in Baden-Württemberg, so southern Germany and worked there for a year and then another brewery for three months. And then okay. I went to Wein Stefan and at the end of my, 
Well, during my, my studies, I worked for two other breweries. And then when I finished, I decided to stick around and get some experience. And I'm still there getting experience. <laughs> wow. You're in kind of like a, a small group of Americans who have, who have made this journey in terms of like getting educated in Germany. I mean, it must be, it's a small fraternity. I think yourself, Eric Warner, I mean, there's a few others. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Before me, Dan Carey had just left. He just finished up when I started at Vine Stefan and another guy by the name of uh, Pat Couteau. Mm-hmm. And I think he worked for Henry Weinhardt for, for many years. And um, yeah. Dan, and there's Dan Gordon was a Vine Stefan graduate too, isn't he? Uh, right, That's right. Correct. Yeah. Uh, he finished just, uh, just before I came. So. Okay. Got it. And he's still brewing that German beer out here also. He's still brewing, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys, you get it in your blood and then it's, that's, that's that. <laughs> that's it, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so you've spent plenty of time there. You see, you did mention you took a German language class first. Right, yeah. Uh, you say that very nonchalantly as if it's just simple to pick up German uh, fluid, fluently, but I, you must be by now. Yeah, yeah. I am not, I'm certainly, yeah. Uh, it was difficult in the beginning, but I was really eager. And of course, I had... I had no responsibilities. I had no family, not even a girlfriend. So it was easy to spend my time getting into it and, and uh, concentrating on the language because uh, sure. that was a prerequisite to getting into my chef on is that you pass the German exam. So okay, I, I had that was uh, so I'd, I'd been in Germany for over a year, about 14 months and had been working in a brewery, uh, you know, from for 12 months. So First two two months of the language course, and then twelve months of brewery work, and uh, that's where I really learned it. Then was uh, you know talking with the locals. Sure, that makes and sense. And I remember Dan Gordon in interviews with him saying, "Yeah, you, you don't go to Weinstefan and speak English. It's just not how it works." So no, it's, no, it's no. part of the package. You know? Right. <laughs> okay. So how long have you been with Chunram that you're that you're at now? I've been here. I've uh, been in Chunram for twenty three years. Wow. So since nineteen ninety eight. And the brewery itself, how long has that been there? That's been around a while. So in the current <laughs> form, uh, with the uh, in the current family constellation since 1780, we're now in the wow. eighth generation of the, the family ownership. The brewery tavern or tap, which is next door, goes uh, dates back to 1512. So we assume because of the status, there are documents that say that has given it the status of a tavern. A tavern at the time in 1512 meant that you had a lot of uh, privileges, but also responsibilities. And one of the responsibilities was to ensure that uh, in bad weather or in, in, in difficult times that you could uh, house and feed and, and give everybody enough drink. So wow. usually taverns uh, had a brewery attached to them. Okay. And we, we had a fire in, in our archives uh, after the Second World War. So a lot of uh, material was lost, but there are some, we found some records in Salzburg at the university that show a brewery on site in 1643 is the farthest we can go back, but we assume it goes back to 1512. That's amazing, Matt. We don't, we just don't get any of that in the United <laughs> States. Anything old like that for us is, you know, it's a landmark. It's the Grand Canyon. That's what we yeah. get. No, and I think a lot of us think about these German breweries having always made Hellas and always made Pilsner and always made wheat beer. But that's a relatively recent part of the history of a brewery of this age. Is that correct? I mean, these were probably brown beers before this time. That's correct. Yeah, we were, uh, especially because of our location being in South Bavaria, you know, right at the foot of the Alps. The water coming off the Alps and filling the aquifers is uh, is quite hard. Has a lot of carbonate hardness. 
And so those that kind of water is best suited for brewing dark beer. Mm. And um, so we were what 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 was called back then a, a brown beer brewery. So a brown beer brewery. So Dunglis was was the actually the only beer we made, and it wasn't until 1955 that we started brewing Helles. Wow. Wow. And so why the change in 55 then? Um, just a way you could treat the water differently or? Yeah. Well, you know, we, we do a very primitive treatment with flaked lime where we, uh, we just uh, overdose the water with uh, calcium hydroxide and through precipitation get uh, the bicarbonate out. Of course, you can boil the water, but that's very costly and very time consuming to, to get the hardness out of it. Okay. But through these, uh, you know, a simple process of um, sedimentation. So it's um, through by adding slate lime, you get a higher pH, and that uh, speeds up the the reaction and uh, the sedimentation of the calcium bicarbonate and um, magnesium hydroxide as well. So you get the you know get the seventy percent of the hardness taken out through that, and that's that's perfect then for making uh, lagers or Helles Pilsner, whatever. Wow. And, and was uh, it also a reflection of the market at the time? Did, just that people wanted something a bit lighter and crisper? Yeah, it, um, yeah. you know, that all started in, in Pilsen in 1842. There was a Bavarian gentleman by the name of Josef Kroll, who went there and was working at the Pilsen Brewery. And uh, 1842, he, he came out with the, you know, the original Pilsen beer, so a paler color. And that, of course, uh, coincided with uh, uh, perfecting or improving the malting techniques. So the malt was much less frequently burned or, or overkilned, you know. And at the same time in Bohemia, you had the glass culture, the clear glasses were emerging. And these mm. clear glasses, of course, combined with a, with a pale beer, was very appealing to the eye. So, sure. And that was uh, the Pilsner, so 1842. Munich's not that far away from, from Pilsen. So by the end of the 19th century, the news of this, this, New kind of beer, you know, pale in color had reached, uh, you know, the cities, uh, and in Munich, it was the Spaten Brewery that first mm-hmm. started brewing that style of beer. But of course, because of the water, much hotter in, in, in Munich, similar to our water, essentially, than it is in, in Pilsen. They, they had to dumb it down in terms of the hop. So they had to lower the hopping rate to make it, uh, not too astringent, not too, too bitter. You know, the, the, the soft Czech water, of course, uh, Allows you to throw in a lot more hops than, than you would expect. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that became an 18, so that was 1895 when Spotten started brewing a pale lager or Pilsner style. And, uh, they, they exported it initially, exported it to Northern Germany. And it took another year before they, they released it on the locals. Wow. And so 1955, so only really 59 yeah. years later, uh, we started brewing it in Schoenland. So by that time it hit the countryside as well. So that is that less hot, less hopped version you describe. Is that essentially the Hellas? Is that the birth? That's of the Hellas. Hellas. Yeah, yeah. So okay. the Hellas is uh, mothered or the you know the, the origin of the Hellas is is uh, the Pilsner. Got it. Okay. I'm glad. I like the way you're describing that. It's it really putting things together for me because when I first started to learn about German beer, I definitely had been told you know that the Pilsner from Pilsen was this like the original hoppy beer. You know, it's the original right. IPA type of hoppy beer, right? And that Hellas right. was this lighter version of that. And this is just really, this is a good connection for me to, to, yeah, to learn just, that history. Uh, yeah. It was a logical consequence of, of a, a harder water. Interesting. Uh, that, uh, that, that results in the Hellas. And you still, you must still make a Dunkless now. 
though. You still we do, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're we're making more and more. Actually, it's, uh, it's I wouldn't say it's it's uh, having a comeback, but um, people are starting to appreciate it again. So. Got it. And Matt, how did you uh, connect with with Eric on beer? I make it my business to know who makes the best beer and I go try to meet them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. No, I think, and, and Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, but I probably met you first either through European Beer Star in one of those events, or maybe before that, even through John Mallet in one of our visits to your brewery. I do remember going hiking with you and Mallet and maybe yeah, yeah. And Chris from Siebel. And the experience absolutely blew my mind. The combination of beer fresher and better than I'd ever tasted it. And then a, a hike in the Alps with you. I mean, that was insane. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I think uh, initially it was uh, maybe World Beer Cup in 2004, 2008. See, that's somewhere it was in San Diego. And then, yeah. And then you came to the brewery with Mallet and, and Fowl. And, and, and you bring up a great point because I think World Beer Cup, if, if for no, nothing else, has brought so many international brewers together I mean, because that's that's also where i met hedwig neven of course who i work now with from duval right. and so many right. other just great minds in brewing yeah for sure so we do get to see each other if not annually every other year or so at brow and european right. beers our events which is an awesome opportunity because again we get to taste each other's beers and kind of catch up a little bit so yeah mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's always a pleasure to see you so Matt, what what is it in your eyes? You know what is is so unique about Eric's beer? Oh. You know what draws you to his lagering techniques that that you're such a such a fan. And Eric oh, lost your video for me in a sec. Yeah. yeah, there you go. There we go. You know, I don't, I don't even know where to start, but I think we'll, we'll we'll head down this kind of road with with Eric. I mean, I think a couple of the things that I've picked up. And I don't want to start with hops, but I can certainly, you know, just talk about raw, mater- raw materials in general. I think Eric has always had a really good sense, maybe focusing largely on, you know, local raw materials. And has just been a great example of a brewmaster who is thoughtful and, and, and thinking in terms, thinking ahead, of course, of on the raw material front. And like so many things, it's not that there's so many elements, but it's very good quality elements that go into the process. And maybe that's where we should start the conversation. I mean, I feel like you have maybe better connection with some of your barley growers, the farmers that are producing the, the grains that are later malted for your beers. And yeah, also the hop growers right? And you have kind of like a, an interesting company philosophy around that. I feel like that's simple and maybe more of us could learn from, but maybe you can go into a little bit of that. I think it'd be really interesting. Sure. sure. Yeah. Well, we, um, in Schoenheim, we make about, um, this year we'll do about 120,000 hectoliters of beer. So just a little more than a hundred thousand barrels. And we sell 90% of that in a radius of 60 kilometers, which is about 40 miles. So people appreciate the fact that we're uh, a local beer and a local brand. And of course, we want to have the raw materials from as close by as possible as well. And of course, the Holidao, the first farm in the Holidao is maybe uh, 170 kilometers away. And in Tetnang, uh, this is 300 kilometers away. So yeah, that's our farthest farm. It's 300 kilometers. And then we have the barley coming from farms that are about 120 kilometers away. Uh, is, is the closest one up to about 350. So we have some up, you know, up in Franconia, 
which is still part of Bavaria or is part of Bavaria, uh, regardless of what Bavarians and Franconians say. But uh, <laughs> the Bavarians don't want the Franconians and the Franconians don't want the Bavarians. But uh, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you got to have a little rivalry. That's okay. Yeah. It's very important for us to know you know where where things are grown and and who grows them and of course it's it's a bit difficult on the barley front because um you don't have many farmers there or maybe a, just a you could probably count them on one hand easily in bavaria that uh are just barley farmers um barley is a crop that tends to be it tends to fill holes in a farm's um, capacity so yeah, they'll try on on uh, maybe five hectare. So a hectare is two point four seven acres. They'll try on maybe five hectare summer barley just to to see how it grows there and and hope that the price is good at the end of the year. You know, the the barley unfortunately is traded on the the spot market, so the prices fluctuate a lot, and it's also it's often influenced by what it's what's happening in Australia or in Canada or even in Argentina or what the, the Chinese are doing right now, summer barley prices are very high and that's being blamed on the Chinese, just pretty much like everything else right now. Like every, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's a bit difficult to find a farm dedicated to just barley. And uh, so we work primarily with the monsters and, and locating that because we, we, for, for our size are already, we need a, a, an area of about 400, hectare, which is almost a thousand acres for our barley. So that's about 70 or 80 farms already wow. there. So it's really difficult to get to know every farmer individually. With the hops, it's a bit easier. Uh, we, we need about 15, 12 to 15 hectare a year, depending on the, that year, depending on the harvest. So I'd say what around 30, say around 30 acres of hops that we need a year. So I have four farms. From where I get my hops, as opposed to the seventy or eighty that I have the barley from, <laughs> and it's uh, it's much easier to. So I have some hops, some farms, three farms where I buy directly, and the rest I buy through a co-op. It's a farmer-owned co-op uh, that covers a wider area of the Holodau, and there I'm able. I usually end up selecting from the same farms every year, but I have the option if it's a bad year for one farm, say they get hit by hail or as, as this year, there's been some flooding. If you get, if one, if that farm, if one of those farms should have bad luck, I have the option of, uh, you know, going with another one. Got it. You're focused predominantly on German raw materials, both on right. the green and hop side. I think at some point you told me that, I don't know if you've 100% um, gotten away from using imported hops, but it seems like your focus has always been. Yeah. We, uh, we, well, we, we, we were one of the first breweries, I think it was 2009 or at least 2010 at the latest where we started, we started brewing some special beers, uh, as we call them, like, uh, well, we brewed a, an IPA, a stout, an Imperial stout, porter, uh, we've even done Belgian triple, Maison, things like that. Wow. And initially, well, we made, um, when, for the stout and imperial stout, I was using British hops and for the IPA, I was using American hops. And suddenly, so around 2011, 12, a lot of people started brewing these, these styles of beers in Germany. And that coincided with the boom in the US as well. So hop prices just got crazy. And, um, it also got difficult to, 
became difficult to uh to actually to get a you know the good quality i would say you know you mm-hmm. have guys like matt and, and uh sierra nevada of course getting the first cut and the you know the best lots and whatever made it over to europe was not exactly uh, what you wanted to have but at the same time you know i've been uh advising the german hop growers association since 2007 also in marketing their hops in the u.s and i've been to cdc from 2007 to 2018 with them and I'm on the board of uh, advisors, uh, technical advisors for the, for the Society for Hop Research. And, um, so we, they've brought out a, a number of very interesting varieties the last few years and, and they have the qualities that, that you want or need to make, uh, an American style or an American inspired pale ale or IPA. And I, I thought, why not? These, these guys I have out the back door, you know, just a hundred miles up the road. Why not, uh, just go all German? So, sure. What's an example of one of those varieties that would be a German hop uh, fitting for an, an American style pale or IPA? Uh, we, we started, we were the first to use um, the Mandarina Bavaria. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's, um, it's, um, it's a ridiculous name. Uh, there was a, a, a group of some hops that came out. There was Mandarina, Holletel uh, Blanc, and Hull Melon that came out at the same time in 2012. All daughters of Cascade. Uh, mm. so I'd say it's kind of the, the white trash of hops. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, one mother and three different fathers. But, um, and Mandarina is, is an excellent hop, but it has to be picked at exactly the right time. And yeah. um, the, the farmer that does that and where I get my Mandarina, I know that uh, he, he prefers to shut off his machines, even if it's uh, for, for three days. And he'll have his, you know, his, uh, Polish or Czech workers, uh, you know, do some other work around the farm, but just buy his time until the hop has reached its peak. And that's the hop that's unfortunately hasn't done as well in the market, I think, as it could have if the farmers would be a little more, yeah, diligent about picking it at the right time, because that's a, it's a variety. It smells like green tomatoes until September 20th, I'd say. <laughs> and he's starting to think, well, this is never going to get ripe. And the next day you have tangerine and mandarin orange and, uh, wow. and very sweet citrus fruit. And if that one picked properly at the right time, it's, it's an amazing hop. Okay. What a finicky little hop you have there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And I'm not close enough to to be there to make those calls. And I feel like you know, some merchants and some farmers have kind of found the sweet spot and continue to deliver. And then there's also a lot that doesn't. And melon, you 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 mentioned whole melon is another one. And I feel like actually over the years, at least for our beers, you know, we buy a fair amount of, of mandarina, but we also have been buying or contracting for more and more melon. And that's one hop that has been finding its way kind of into our IPA program. And, and cool. I don't think yeah. it has a little bit wider picking window and that's why we've been able to find quality with melon but in terms of you know a little bit more explosive fruit forward aroma it's been performing well and i always say that like relative to maybe u.s hops like mosaic and and citra which are just so potent and so well known by american brewers i feel like so many brewers have passed these beautiful hops up either they didn't get again yeah hops picked in the right window or they just haven't had the patience to, um, you know, really play with them and get to know them well. Right. Yeah. And you can also do a lot with uh, synergy 
I've found that uh, we make a pale ale that we combine uh, mandarina, calista, and ariana. And for some reason, the synergy of those, it gets close to a U.S. style pale ale, but you still, you get the continental character coming out, which is actually what I want. Hmm. If I want to make a U.S. style pale ale or IPA, then um, I'll buy U.S. hops. But um, Okay. Uh, but these are locally grown and and uh, with farm from by farmers I know, and uh, I think it's great to to have that. Absolutely. One thing one thing that they found with these with these newer varieties, you know, they also mistakenly I thought called them flavor hops. I would call them more dual purpose hops. One thing that we're seeing is that they're extremely robust in terms of uh, things like uh, well disease, but also drought, heat, and climate change. And I've been working with uh, specifically Mandarina and Ariana as varieties to use in the first topping of, of our hamlets, for example. Wow. And I've, I've had Mandarina in the hamlets now for two years. It's maybe about 15% of the makeup, but um, I know that it works and it's important for four years down the road because I think we're going to get to the point where uh, some of the traditional varieties that have been around for centuries are... They're just not going to cut it with, um, with well, with climate change, with um, sure. the increasing the increased heat. You know, it's getting hotter every year. It's getting drier every year. Or we have things like we do now in Germany with these events of flash flooding and that. So you mm-hmm. get all the rain or all the precipitation in a couple of days, and and then it, the next nine weeks you get nothing again. But yeah, you have uh, to turn it into variety. California. Yeah, and yeah. specifically mandarina and. Um, yeah, mandarina, ariana, also Halle Blanc, and melon are much, much more tolerant of that kind of climate, which is uh, it's interesting. So the whole hop, the hop harvest window is, is shifting. I mean, it used to be in the Halle They'd start on August 15th, just sort of like the, the day that said that usually everybody has started by August 15th, and that would be the first variety. The earliest variety would be Halle Tau Middle Through. And in Tetnang, the Halle Tau Middle Through or Tetnang, and many farms were done with their harvest by, by August 31st or August 25th. And now August 25th is, is more or less the earliest picking date. And a lot of farms are starting on the 31st or even September 1st. And, you know, the, the, the last day of the days of harvest, I know farms that, you know, the last years have been finishing up on, on September 28th, which is mm-hmm. unheard of, you know, would have, wow. would have been unheard of, uh, even 10 years ago. Just fascinating. This is the first time that I've heard climate change addressed to hops directly with one of our interviews. And it's just an excellent point that you make. And I also just want to bring up for maybe some of our more casual listeners, not to like gloss over the fact that you've just said you're using 15% or so of the mandarina in your Hellas, which is almost sacrilege for a German brewer to not just use noble hops, right? I mean, it's really right, yeah, it's a, yeah. a bold move on your part, but I don't I can, publish. I don't make it public in Germany. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't tell him. I no, won't tell him. I promise. <laughs> Nobody listens to this show. Don't worry. And uh, <laughs> but I, actually, it, I, I, I tell the I, the, so the hop brewers know it, and, and uh, at um, the hop research research society they know it as well. Brokers there. Sorry, I interrupted. Uh, are are no, recommending no, no. that as well? So they're recommending that people try it. The problem is, is nobody's trying it, but somebody's got to try it. And yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what I mean. It's this bold move on your part. But with the explanation you gave about climate change and the durability of these strains, 
you're clearly saying it's necessary. If you don't figure something out, we're not going right. to have this hella style as we know it anyway. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, I want to know these things well enough in advance to know that it works because I don't want to be caught with my pants down, so to speak, uh, and, and have a year where I don't get my crop that's been contracted and I have to resort to a variety that I don't know. And sure. so, you know, I've, I've tested, well, I wouldn't say every, but uh, nearly every variety in the Hellas just to make sure hmm. that I know how to use it should the, should the, it become a necessity. So, Matt, don't you want to know how do you use it? <laughs> like, I want to know what you had to change for it to still taste like your Hellas, but by using a significant percentage of a new hop, what else had to give? Well, I, so our Hellas is traditionally a blend of four different varieties. And I can tell you what they are. They're tradition, tradition in German. That's our, that's our standard bittering hop that we use. That's a variety that was released. So it was also created by the, or it was bred by the Gesellschaft, the Hopfenbosch, so the Hop Research Society that came out in, in 1993. Actually, as a sort of a next generation or replacement for Hallettau Mittelpur. So the genes of it are primarily old land race varieties, but also quite a bit of the Sots genes in it. So it's primarily, it's using old varieties, Sotza, Spalte, and Hallettau. Uh, bred with uh, German male hops to try to create a hop that's a little more robust and a little more reliable in terms of alpha acid and yields. Uh, so this was, so this was released in 1993 and that's my bittering hop, which is actually, it was bred as a, as an aroma hop. So that's that, then Sparta Select, which was also released in 1993. That contains a lot of also Sats genes. It's unique in that it has also farnesine. Uh, my, my English term sometimes, is that correct, Matt? Yeah, uh, farnesine, yes. Farnesine, yeah, okay. So, so, which is typical of the Sats family. And then Hesbrucka, which is an old land race. Uh, you know, Hesbrucka is a region, is, is, used to be a hop growing region. I mean, there's still hops grown there, but uh, administratively and statistically, it's now counted as part of the Holletal. But it's uh, to the west or to the east of Nuremberg east and southeast of Nuremberg, so Hesdrucka and Safia, which is a variety that came out in 2002. Mm. And similar... So you said uh, that last one was Safir? Yeah, yeah. So those are the four hops that I use. In doing so, then I'm able from year to year to adjust the percentage of each of those hops to accommodate for fluctuations in the harvest. And on top of that, then we're using as many as three harvests of each variety. So I could have as many as 12 lots of hop in one hellas uh, and by by blending the different uh, harvests the different years i'm compensating for the fluctuations as well so but i can reduce the, the amount of, of one variety and increase the amount of another from year to year depending on how how the harvest is gone and so the the hop i've sacrificed in this case uh to accommodate for mandarina has been uh tradition but it's um so it's it's, an, it's the early so it's a bittering I'm using it as, as a bittering hop. Okay. And I mean, I think a lot of our listeners think of hops as just this year to year. I'm just always trying to burn through my latest crop year and get into the new crop year. I'm not really thinking about blending, certainly not three crop years together to try to get to this homogeneous end. And I think there's good reason for that from your perspective in that, and, and you can go into more detail, but a few few things that come to mind for me are, one, you're dealing with much smaller farms, 
you're dealing with a smaller percentage of those farms or at least the hectares under irrigation. So maybe year to year crop to crop variation is a right. little more extreme coming from Germany. I think one thing that you've tipped me off on and that I'm paying more and more attention to is when there is a good year for a particular variety, you know, you should go a little a bit longer because it right. could be yeah, that next definitely. year it's not going to be so good or maybe even a couple years and that right. you know that you should pay attention and and kind of take advantage of those premium years and maybe you can kind of take it from there i mean i can see that why this blending of multiple years is so advantageous for you yeah it's um you know the the, the hellas is not a hot forward beer but it, it's it's a, it's very delicate so it's about 20 bittering units fluctuates between 18 and 20 without doing anything different just if you have, if you analyze it, it's, you know, that's just the, you know, the, the, the fluctuations they have in the analysis, but, um, it's not hop forward, but the hops that are in there are, are very good hops. And the, even the slightest change is perceivable also just because of the base beer itself, which is Pilsner malt, uh, very highly attenuated. And through the high attenuation, that allows the hops to really, to really come out and shine even at, at a low level. So. People perceive uh, the bitterness, or you know, they, they 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 can taste it and smell it. And the funny thing is, is people want or expect they know that beer is a natural product, it's an agricultural product, twofold as as opposed to wine, onefold. Wine just has the grapes. We have the hops and the barley. Class traditionally or usually, if it's a good barley year, it's a shitty hop year. And if it's a, <laughs> if, it's a, if it's a great hop year, it's a shitty barley year. Unfortunately, okay. but that's the way it works. It's uh. It's, uh, so people want a natural product, but at the same time, uh, they expect consistency, reliable consistency. And, and that's the only way to achieve that is through, through blending different harvests, in my opinion. It works. I mean, obviously, if you, if you don't have the capacity to keep it cold, uh, we store our hops at uh, two degrees Celsius. My hops, half of my hops have been pelletized by the end of October. So it goes straight from the farm. I select early. They go to the farm in the month of from the farm to the to the pelletizing plant in September. They're pelletized by the end of October, most of them, and, and the rest by the end of of November. So that's all very quick, and it's all cold. So I don't. I try try to keep the the chain of, of refrigeration uh, constant from the harvest on, and then uh, maintain that throughout. So you can you can store harvest a harvest uh, for four years. Wow. And we're pretty uh, unusual in that we we have hops on hand for just under two years. So I contract for a full year, a full year plus. Say I contract for about 110 percent of what I need, and in a good year, like you're saying, Matt, I'll uh, I'll buy more. And usually, I mean, it ends up that you know I'm getting it from from this farm. They had tradition, for example. I get I'm getting eight tons, and it's all coming from this farm. Well. The whole lot is 10 tons. So why don't I just take that if it's great? Mm. And that's what I do. And at the same time, because I've been working with this co-op, or I even do it with these individual farms, is um, I'll say uh, in a bad year, you know, I was like, okay, I've got a little bit of a buffer built up here at home. So I don't really need everything I've contracted. And I say to the farm or to the co-op, I say, look, um, I'll just take five tons instead of eight. And you can take those three tons and sell them on the stock market for yourself and help yourself out a little bit. 
And, you know, then uh, they will we'll reciprocate in a bad year and help me out. So it's uh, it's, it's our part of our, our philosophy at Shenlam is to, to live and let live. So we really, you know, we, we try to help our growers out where we can and, mm-hmm. and they reciprocate by helping us out when, when we need it. I love That's this. Cute. Such a great philosophy. And um, I feel like it's a different landscape because there's so many small farmers there compared to this kind of smaller number of large farms in the United States. Yeah. And, yeah. and for us to go and do selection, we're kind of dealing with a different lot size. We're dealing with kind of a whole different beast when it comes to the selection and obtaining good quality. And again, to the, to the original point, I think the more that, you know, craft brewers here on this side of uh, the pond can kind of get their head around that concept and, and maybe get over and see what's going on over there would be the best way. Oh, yeah. I, I highly recommend crossing the pond and then having a look. Uh, they're letting Americans in now. It's, uh, <laughs> oh. I think uh, <laughs> yeah, Euro- Europeans aren't allowed to travel to the U.S. just yet, uh, unfortunately. Right. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, I mean, obviously, if you have a smaller brewery, I mean, the, the, the pellets, the run of a pellet, say it's uh, in Sanctuan, is, is a big pelletizing plant. Uh, you need 1,500 kilos for a run or they might do, they might do a thousand, but of course you got losses on both ends. So the bigger volume you have, the the greater, the or the less the losses are going to be and the, the better it is and the cheaper it is in the end. Then, so if you have 30% loss, of course, in, in the, at the end of the day, the hops are going to be pretty expensive. But, um, so, but, you know, for small brewers, it might be an idea to, uh, you know, to, to get together and, and, and find a, you know, sort of a common denominator in terms of what you want and buy a little, you know, buy that together. And well, Matt, we've done this yep. together. We've, uh, we buy Calista together. Uh, oh, and that, that brings up an excellent point. So yeah, we, we got together on a relatively small amount, but it was enough to satisfy our two breweries. I certainly felt honored because I got to take advantage of some of your uh, selection expertise and just boots on the ground. And maybe the element of that that would be interesting to the listeners is that you convinced me to do a little bit of concentrating of that material. And maybe you could go into that detail a little bit. Right. Yeah. Which is there. Yeah. It's um, all depends on what kind of technology you have. You know, we have a a whirlpool from 1981, which at the time it was was conceived. It was well, they had gone from hop strainers to whirlpools. And well, the engineering hadn't really been thought out yet. It was just a. the the idea was you just take a tank and uh put a pipe in going in sideways tangentially to to get a whirlpool effect going and use that then to sediment out your hops and it's it's only been well i guess about 25 years ago they figured out how these things really work so a modern whirlpool is is really nothing or should be nothing more than a, a cool ship with a lid on it you know well around a circular cool ship with a lid on it uh you know they're much broader and much squatter uh, than the old ones, but they're more effective. Of course, for the kind of beers that most Germans are making, uh, uh, you don't need that, that diameter. But at any rate, uh, to to reduce the load on your whirlpool, you can have the hops concentrated or standardized. So you say, let's say you have a, a Heersbrucke with uh, 3%, which that uh, would actually be pretty good because uh, the 10-year average is about 2.7. Or let's say you have a, a bad year. Let's say you have uh, 2%. Well, if you standardize that uh, to 3%, that means you take out enough of the green of the, the vegetal matter to get it from 2% to 3% alpha. 
uh, you know, that's, uh, that's actually a pellet 66. So it's, uh, people talk about 45, type 45 and type 90. So type 90 essentially just being the raw hops cones where the, uh, you got to help me here, Matt, the, the English term for the, uh, so you're using the whole cone and, and you're milling all the material with maybe just the strig being removed. So essentially exactly. 90% strig, of the material. Yeah. Couldn't think of the strig in English, but this. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's been removed. So you have about 90% of the original material is in the pellet and pellets 45 or what often are, you know, that's when people talk about concentrating or standardizing the pellets. Well, most, most, most pellets type 45 are just, uh, to bump the alphas up a little bit. So we, we have for a lot of our varieties, we'll take it, we'll take, for example, tradition from six and a half percent up to eight percent or, uh, Halletown middle through from, from four and a half percent to six percent. So we're always working in the range. I mean, we'll, we will have a pellet 50, but we're usually in the range somewhere between 50 and, and 80. So it's just to, to lower a little bit of the, the load on the, you know, on the technological side and, well, essentially for every, every kilogram of hot pellets you use, uh, one kilogram sucks up 13 liters of water. Yeah. Uh, you know, so every, every kilogram you can save is, 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 is wart one. And so we've had a, we had a string of bad years. And for the, for, for the Hellas, I uh, had to bump the hop pelletized hops up from, for one brew from nine kilos to 15 kilos over a series of, uh, well, three years and so with every every brew i was losing uh 70 liters of wort and if uh, you have a 800 brews of hellas a year yeah a hell of a lot of hell of a lot of beer uh, well and it's yeah. interesting on on this side cryo hops or these t45s that have a little bit of special processing but for all intents right. purposes, the very similar process is right. kind of a new age thing for a lot of craft brewers here and yet this concentrating of pellets has been going on for oh yeah gosh, better part of a couple of decades in germany right um, and it always made me think that maybe there was some possibility to intensify some of these you know what we're calling flavor hops the mandarina bavaria the hull mill and some of these calista even to something that might even be more interesting to the u.s brewer looking to use them to dry hop yeah better yields obviously that was kind of the intent of the whole thing and some consistency but also maybe some more intense flavors down the line definitely it might be an economically viable way of utilizing them i just wanted to mention you mentioned calista and this is a hop that again when when we were there rubbing i mean i just fell in love with that hop there were all these soft fruit and tropical notes and it's just this gorgeous hop and maybe uh, not the same intensity as a mosaic or something, but we found a place for it because it's such a low alpha hop with this relatively high linalool and a nice intensity Right. Yeah. Exactly. That, that we're using at hot side on our hazy IPAs where you don't want bitterness, but you want this fruitiness and linalool is known to be, you know, one of these biotransformative components. Right. right yeah. And it just seems like the perfect hop to use in a hazy IPA where you have all the elements, low alpha, high oil, and linalool. And so I've been kind of extending my contracts a little bit on that. So, you know, I'll cool. <laughs> ah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's uh there's also, uh, it's uh limonine. Limonine is in there. Uh, but that's also one that, you know, goes, uh, it fits into the bio transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, cool. we spent all this great time on hops and I think we go to the finish line talking about hops. But I promised Justin that we would dig a little deeper into kind of your lager brewing philosophy, 
And I would just love to kind of go through a little bit of that and not know where to start. But I mean, I think, you know, we could kind of start in the brew house and maybe work our way a little bit through the process. Sure. I don't know how much time we have for detail, but I think there's a few elements in your process that are, are unique and certainly meaningful. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we can start, um, well, I could start with the barley. You know, the, I, I like the older varieties. Um, the problem is, uh, you know, the, the barley is driven by something beyond our control. And, uh, so there's new varieties coming out every year on the average of three to four varieties or being approved for, for growers. So, and growers, of course, are going for the highest yield, uh, which is really not what we want. Um, so the variety, I'm always about five to six years behind the development. So I'm always using the, the oldest varieties that I can get. Some of the older varieties, for example, like Steffi are all in the hands of Augustina. You, mm-hmm. you can't find anybody to grow them for you because they're all growing up for Augustina. But I, I like, um, I like varieties that are, that uh, are easier to control in the germination, that they're not, they don't uh, run away in the germination process and get over modified. I also like low color. So we, we're using variety called Parque and Marque. And, uh, Steffi has kind of gotten, well, unfortunately gotten away from that because it's hard to get. It's just too hard to find. And it's to re- reliably get it from year to year. That is a bit of a problem. But then we, uh, we take it in the brew house then and, and, uh, decoct everything. We do single decoction. And, um, that's why I say to the maltsters, leave the, the mashing to me because, of course, the higher the, the modification, you know, the less you have to mash and, I don't want it to, to, to convert and just if it, if you just get it wet and then you have, you have a conversion already. I don't want that. So I take about two and a half, two, two hours, 22 and a half hours to, to, to mash. Oh. And it's, so it's a step infusion leading up to about six, anywhere between 63 and 68 C. And at, the, at that temperature somewhere in there, I'll draw off two thirds of the mash into the water ton because I don't have a mash cooker. And then I'll use my mash, my mash ton as a mash cooker then and heat them to that one third that remains behind, heat that up to 72 to get the, some alpha amylase activity and actually get a, get a conversion there already. And then I'll heat it up to a boil. And depending on the beer style, we'll boil a little longer, a little bit uh, shorter. Uh, the dark beer, of course, I boil the longest, but the hellish, for example, is, is basically I just heat it up to boil. And then I mash out into the lauder ton to bring that whole mix in there up to 72 and let that sit for 15 minutes for conversion and then bring the rest up to hit about 76, 77. I'm sorry, I'm using Celsius rather than uh, Fahrenheit, but okay. The, Everyone's got the, Google. We, they can, they can I Google. I can't for, for the life of me. And I mean, even, even uh, going to engineering school, you know, we, and golden, we, you know, we just, uh, we talked in Celsius and kilograms and grams and all that. So, you know. Does that mean you have, you have steam on the lauder tone or something comes back to the mash mixer for that final step? No, we, so we can't, once we're in the lauder tone, we can't go back. So okay. the lauder tone is just well insulated. I even have the, the floor of it insulated and, uh, the ring underneath is insulated. So everything that gets in there retains its heat and, then, and we got, um, we're not, we're, we're mashing in every three and a half hours. So that thing never really cools down that much. So yeah, so I'm using, um, 
in fact, when we just had two vessels in the brew house, just the mash ton, the mash ton mash cooker was also the the copper for the brew kettle and then the lotter ton. But now I have three vessels in there aside from the whirlpool. And so I mash in then, you know, do my step infusion, draw off to the lotter ton, heat up, decoct, transfer to the lotter ton to get 72. Let it sit for 15 minutes, then transfer the rest up to hit 76, 77, then start, start lottering. And once I get to the second spars, then I'll mash it and it's brew because that infusion is long enough, uh, that by the time I've, I'm ready to take transfer those two thirds to the lotter ton, I've already lottered off and I've gotten the spent grains out. So. No, that's uh, that's very successful. About seven and a half hours or seven and a half brews per day that we get through there, and that's wow. that method. So, so, so then the yeah. the million dollar question is your opinion on decoction in terms of flavor development. I'm sure there's some additional efficiencies gained there. Yeah, maybe those are quantifiable, but I think most importantly right. is the the flavor and the quality that that you derive through that decoction. Right. Yeah. Some, some folks say they do decoction to get more, uh, malt flavor into the beer, you know, uh, more, uh, body and that. And I actually use the decoction to tighten the beer up to get it more crisp and more dry. Mm-hmm. So we hit an attenuation, apparent final attenuation of about 87% with the decoction that if in the same time I were to do an infusion, I'd hit about 84%. And of course, if you heat a, you know, that mass up to boil, the size of our brew house is 90 hectoliters, knockout wort, 93 hectoliters, hot wort. So for, for the decoction, I need 10 liters more of oil. We, we heat our, our steam generator with oil, uh, or fire with oil. So I need 10 more liters of oil to achieve three, three percent more in attenuation. Uh, if I were to try to hit that attenuation with infusion, I could do it, but I'd need 15 more minutes in the, in the, in the mash. So, you know, doing 36 brews a week, 15 minutes is a hell of yeah. a lot, you know, that's it. And so I, I lose almost two brews then. So, but I did what the decoction does is I think, you know, it, it dries the beer up and allows those hops to really, to really shine. And, and at the same time, we have a sweetness that people perceive. So many people see our, our Hellas has a, a sweet finish. Well, it kind of does, but it's, it's actually the alcohol. You know, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, alcohol imports a, a, a sweet flavor to the beer. So it's, it's pretty schizophrenic, really. Um, you know, you, yeah. you got, you got the sweetness coming from alcohol, but it's only, you know, 5.4 on the label. It's 5%, but, uh, mm-hmm. in the beer, it's actually 5.4%. We're allowed to, to be 0.5% off on what we put on the label. So that, you know, alcohol adds a body to the beer, you know, fullness and sweetness. And, but at the same time, you get this really crisp, fantastic hop finish. Mm. And, it's, uh, and that works, uh, you know, with the Hellas, which is 11.8 Play-Doh. Uh, but it also works with like the Bok beer. You know, we make a pale Bok beer. Uh, you know, it's uh, 17.8 Play-Doh. But we also get up to, I hit about 85, 86% attenuation with that. And then the, you, know, you can just, you can just throw massive amounts of hops at a, at a beer like that because that alcohol then offsets the bitterness of the hops so people think that it's, it's kind of sweet but it's really not you know it's bitter yeah it's, you know got it's got 40 bittering units and and it actually tastes kind of sweet i love that taste in the hellas by the way in in the in the 
I consider a traditional well-done Hellas when I can taste that little bit of sweetness that I can never quite put my finger on what it is. You know, there I don't, you I don't, yeah. I don't really even describe it as sweetness sometimes, but, but it's what it is to me. That's the perceived flavor that I get. And to me, it's very specific to a well-made German Hellas. So I, I really like that. And then cool. just so I'm clear, because over the years, the whole decoction, not, deto- not decoction debate that, ha- that occurs in online forums and, and podcasts is that with highly modified modern malts, you, you just don't need it. But if I heard you right, you said you'd actually, you, you try to get malts that aren't as highly modified right. At, right. because you want to do it yourself. Is that exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. I so would did, say leave, yeah. leave the mashing to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that's what you said. And so that really, even the argument against decoction sort of goes away when you mentioned, Hey, actually, if I can get my malts less modified, I do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. No, it's, um, yeah. So, well, you know, we still manage to, to mash in every, every three and a half hours by doing a single decoction. The way we're set up, I can't do a double decoction or a triple decoction. So we don't need it, but I'd love to try it. So <laughs> I had a beer the other day from Wayfinder that was triple decoction. Uh, and when I re- before I tasted it, I was just reading the, the description and I just thought, well, that's just excessive. Do you just like to work more or what? <laughs> triple decoction just sounds like a lot of work, at least a lot of time, right? It so, is. Yeah, it's a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. But I think two, oh, two hours, 15, two hours, two, uh, two hours and a half for, for a single decoction. That's fine. That's acceptable. Okay. Got it. So, so talk to me yeah. about the, the hopping in the kettle then. Now we've gotten the wort into the kettle and uh, I don't, I suspect that this Hellas is not dry hops. So all the hops no, are no. hot. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, so the Hellas is uh, hopped three times. We, we hop about 10 minutes into the boil and about, so we, we boil for 65 minutes. I evaporate about five and a half percent. We hop about 10 minutes into the boil, first topping. Um, with its tradition and, and mandarina, I've also used Ariana, for example. And then the next hoppings are 30 minutes before the end of boil, so 30 minutes into it and 10 minutes before the end of boil. And, uh, we also use, um, a seed of, it's a lactic culture that we've recovered from the malt. So it's, it's lactic acid we use to correct the pH. So we do that in the, in the mash, but also in the boil. So after the, after the third hopping, then we, uh, we add in the lactic acid to bring the pH down. So at knockout, we're about 5.1. And, um, that lactic acid is, was originally recovered from, from our malt about 30 years ago. Hmm. And that's, well, that's, the that's same the culture, culture that we, that's a culture we continue prop, can uh, continue propagating. It's like sourdough, basically. Uh-huh. Like that. So, I mean, you could use acidulated malt, which I would if, uh, if I didn't have this. In Germany, of course, we, we can use acidulated malt, but we can also use this lactic culture, but it has to have been lactic acid that's been recovered from, from the raw material itself. That I think really benefits us later on in the, in the process, um, cause you get some acids coming in that you don't get out of the raw materials and that you don't get out of fermentation, uh, that help later on in, in the maturation process and, and through esterification. To give you uh, sort of another dimension to the flavor that's uh, that's a bit different from uh, from what you would normally get if you didn't use it. And um, is the 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 yeast then? Oh, oh we, we probably can go into work cooling at that point. But um, yeah, I'm sorry, you can take it from there. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, well, for example, uh, uh, like the, 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 our dark beer we hop, we just give two hoppings to it. The Pilsner, we give five in the brew house. So we use first ward hops on there and then whirlpool hops and then the rest of the stuff's in the middle. So, and every, every hopping that we do is, is, is a blend of, of not of harvest years. And then like for the Hellas, we blend the, the select, the Hesbrucka and the Safia in the second and the third hoppings. Evenly, um, just an even amount of, of each of those hops in the Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. very I vary depending on on my notes from the harvest and, and Okay, uh, yeah. So it's uh some I'm I'm taking I'm I'm increasing the amount of one and decreasing the amount of another, depending depending from year to year. I mean a lot of it's uh you know, my my perception and psychological, but um mm-hmm. of course I feel much more confident about the beer if doing it that way. Okay. Yeah, and then uh so we we knock it out into our whirlpool and we cool down then from from there to six degrees Celsius. And we have a free rise and fermentation. It's all open fermentation. Free rise and fermentation to nine and a half C. So that's that's the equivalent of forty nine Fahrenheit. So my pain threshold for fermentation temperatures is uh ten C, which is about fifty Fahrenheit. So it has to be below 50 to, to be clean for me. And, uh, that takes a, so we let that in ferment more or less. That's it. the biggest problem is, is yeast, uh, nutrition these days with the, with the barley varieties you're getting or with just the barley you're getting because the yields are growing up and up and up and it's not going up through fertilization, you know, fertilizer, things like that. The, you know, you, you're not allowed to use much to to enhance growth. I mean, you can add uh, nitrogen to the soil and that as a farmer, but uh, you can't really do anything else to enhance yield or growth. So it's all variety driven. And of course, the, the bigger the yield or the greater the yield per surface area, the more the, the trace elements, which are finite in the soil, are spread out over a greater volume or greater mass of, of barley. So it's, it's all, you can also do quite a bit in the mash and in the pH of the mash to get more. For example, zinc is a very important trace element for yeast health. And this is sometimes, I think, damn unfortunate in Germany. We can't add uh, yeast nutrients. You know, we got to figure out other ways to do it. It would be nice to just toss some zinc into the, into the kettle and, and it'd be good. So depending on the harvest, it's another harvest thing. You know, it could take 10 to 12 days for, to, to reach uh, end fermentation, you know, final mm-hmm. gravity. So we so, end ferment everything. So you really are there. There is nothing you can do for yeast nutrients. Then is there anything in the Renheitsgebot that you can add that would help with this? Uh, well, you can uh, you can do special brews, and I know there are brews that do that. That um, they they run their the barley through or the malt through a hammer mill, and then do an acidic brew using a lot of um, lactic culture. Okay. At a very low pH, the lower the pH, the the higher the extraction of zinc is out of the house. Mm. Uh, so and using that then to dose back in in the brew house to add zinc to the to the wort. So, I see. so it's very, but you need the capacity and, and the time to do that. The sure. So you're have. saying then just be, because the yeast might be slightly less healthy than than say you would want it, slightly less robust, it's just a matter of time. You're just waiting longer yeah, for it to finish it. Yeah, job. I mean uh, it, it takes takes longer for it. So I mean um, we compensate by adding more yeast in in, in years with uh, lower zinc levels. 
I uh, see. We, we increase uh, the time in, in the brew house in the mash and that to, to extract a little bit more zinc. But I don't have the luxury of making a zinc brew or, or whatever. I just don't have the time and, and the space for that. This yeast variety, uh, or I'm sorry, yeast strain specific to a brewery, or are you um, kind of a, a Weinstefan 3470 fan? Or yeah, I think well, I think the the original our strain was originally a 3470, but it's our house strain, and we have it at the yeast bank as such. It's uh, I think it's the perfect lager yeast. It has a nice. Uh, it, it performs well at low temperatures. It, it uh, takes a while, but it gets the final attenuation. Of course, if it has more yeast or more zinc in the in the wort, it'll go faster. It doesn't produce much diacinals. And um, yeah, for me, it's uh, it's 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 fantastic, and it and has that sulfur sulfur dioxide, uh, like the freshly struck match that you mm-hmm. that you want and expect in Alice, mm-hmm. and that um, that. That goes through until until the bottle, and, and it really it's perceptible. Six months, six six weeks, six to eight weeks in, that eventually dim- diminishes. But uh, you can, you know, if you get that little sulfur, that freshly struck match uh, when you when you pour the beer, you know it's really fresh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so we we, we have, well, so we we end ferment and then cool it down to about three and a half C. And then rack it off, and then we we croisin everything. So we add seven percent croisin, and all of our beers are brewed in the brew house to accommodate for croisin coming from the Hellas, because that's the main brand with eighty um, percent. So back maybe to the the primary fermentation, because you mentioned open fermentation. I know you have some theories on kind of the geometry and the advantage of these open fermenters. That's correct. Yeah, we don't want to stress the yeast, so. We've kind of said four, four meters of height, you know, that's, that's a 0.4 bar of hydrostatic pressure at the bottom of the vessel. Four meters of height, but that's five meters in diameter. So our vessels t- all tend to be wide and flat and, and, you know, so not so high. So the yeast is never put under too much duress while it's fermenting. Cause if you imagine, you know, this living organ driven to the surface by the, just the, the convection, you know, of, of the fermentation, the CO2 being produced. And, you know, so you get the scum coming to the surface and we skim that off. And that stuff uh, is left in the beer, gets uh, over time through the convection taken back into the beer and through rising alcohol content will be taken into solution and impart an astringency or an uh, unpleasant bitterness to finish in the beer. So skimming the heads, we just take the, take the crap out of it. Basically. It's one of those points of attention to detail that not every brewer in a cylinder conical or a uni tank has that advantage of being able to do. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, we're lucky uh, in that um, I'm, I'm lucky in that my my boss, uh, the owner of the brewery, sees it the way I do, and that uh, the family tradition has been that way as well. They they want to, you know, one of our mottos is uh, is tradition and progress. Uh, in unity so we have modern equipment but we try to maintain traditional methods and traditional practices and of course for all that to work you have to have a very clean brewery spotless brewery yeah 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 well that's oof, that's hard that's hard i mean we we do our best uh, but uh, can never be clean enough 
It's, uh, I'm not sure I've seen a cleaner brewery before, but uh, you're, you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> also, just spoken like a German brewer, too. It can never be clean enough. It's very clean, but it can never. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> cleanliness is, uh, yeah, it's uh, really <laughs> primary importance. Yes. So this moves us then to another area of some debate here, at least stateside, is horizontal, shallow maturation vessels and this croisoning that you do. Well, the correction, well, first of all, in the, um, so at the end of primary, we, we cool down, but we take 48 hours to cool it down. So we want to get as much of the yeast out as we can. So we pitch it about 18 million per milliliter. You know, we multi, that multiplies up, that goes up to about, um, well, about 80 million, say. And we don't want to go into lagering or maturation with much more than 20 million if we can. You know, we'd like to get below that, you know, coming out of fermenter. And then, um, we add 7% croissant beer. So that's, um, so it's in the stage of high croissant. So when you get the kind of the almost the, the froth on the top, you know, this really tight, tight, what we call schnitten croissant. So snail croissant, uh, looks like a little snail houses on top of the beer. That's, so that's when the yeast is most active and, and most, um, uh, vibrant, say, and uh, most lively. And by blending 7% of that in, you know, you bring fermentable sugars, a viable yeast, a healthy yeast, and you have a good secondary fermentation starting at about three and a half, four C. And we just let that go then for two weeks and maintain the, that temperature. And after two weeks, then we'll start gradually dropping the temperature. We have a non-negotiable maturation time of 28 days. And, um, I try to keep it at 33 and that, that's been okay. That's been fine the last few years. And if we come, if we, if it looks like we're going to maybe come below the 28 days, we start rationing the beer. So we cut off. So then we just don't send any beer to Berlin, for example. And then, we, then uh, they just don't get any, cause we want to keep the, you know, the home front satisfied. And those are the people that, uh, you know, that, you know, they uh, are better. Well, they keep us alive. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we want to make sure they're happy. So they, they, you know, we make sure that. But um, I mean, my so for sales and marketing for them, it's a 28 day non-negotiable in my head. And all my colleagues and brewers are on board with this. It's 33 days. <laughs> and uh, we could theoretically sell the beer at 23 days, or 24 days. But uh, it's just. It does so much in those last four, you know, four or five days there. So once you hit 24, 25 days, there's a huge improvement and a huge maturation and flavor in that. So mm. uh, we, we always strive for that. I mean, we just, we always tell sales and marketing what we have for 28 days, but that's actually 33 days. And how would, how would you put words to that change in maturation in that 24 and beyond days? Like what, what are you tasting as the brewmaster that's 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 changing or mellowing? Yeah, there's certainly uh, it's the, the edge is gone. It's really hard to describe, and and I think in this um, thing we did and at the Brewers of Europe, we've all touched on that. There's some evidence that there's some things going on, some secretions of peptides and polypeptides in maturation that add to the body and uh, to the mellowness of the beer. And that's something that they're actually looking for, for money right now for doing some research into that. 
to see what the yeast is actually doing. So it's yeast excretions back into the beer. Obviously, you have problems if the yeast excretes too much. If it's autolyzing, you get uh, you know, problems with flavor and with head retention. But the excretes a bit, it adds to body and to flavor and to the mellowness and the, the overall complexity of the beer. And so that's something that's something I would say that's where the edge is coming off of the beer. It's just that, that, that little bit that it's really hard to put your finger on. And it's something that um, if you're thirsty and it's, the beer is cold and it's, you're thirsty and it's your first beer, you could knock that back if it's it's been in the tank for 10 days and otherwise well made, you wouldn't notice. And by halfway through the second beer, then you start to notice something's wrong. It's something different or it's just not quite on, you know. And if you, after the second glass, you have to fight your way to the third one, then you know that uh, there's been some compromising going on in the, either in the fermentation temperature or in the lagering time and that. That's one of the ingredients. In fact, we're going to put it on the label here the next time labels are going to be printed is uh, water, barley malt, hops, yeast, and time. So time time. is going to be, yeah. Yeah. Because every, every self-respecting German beer drinker needs to get through the third pint. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. 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 I mean, (laughs) we count on our people. I mean, uh, otherwise we wouldn't be selling a hundred thousand barrels in a, in a 40 mile radius, you know, it's uh, right. uh, The locals expect, they expect to be able to drink five or six half liters of beer and, and not be, well, not be impaired or too impaired. I mean, obviously sure. not to drive or whatever. I don't want to promote that, but, uh, yeah, yeah. and they want to wake up the next morning and feel fine. And, and, um, but it should be really, I mean, the, the sign of a high drinkability then is in that case is that you have to make a subconscious or a conscious decision. I mean, your subconscious is going to keep wanting more, but your, your conscious has to say, Hey, hold on, cowboy. You got to get up for work tomorrow. You got, uh, uh, yeah, you, you know you can't be drinking all all night. You know, <laughs> That's so, right. uh, so, so it does beg the question, though: Can you lager too long? I mean, is there a point where you're yeah, wanting to move yeah. that beer forward? And, and and I mean, do you have a feeling for that? I suppose it. Yeah. Often making a number of other things. Yeah, we had um, through the pandemic here. We had some problems, obviously, and and how much beer should we make? Uh, how much should we be brewing because uh, pubs were closed and people were working from home and, and weren't going out so much. So there was a period of uncertainty. So last year, so 2020, we reduced too much and then had problems keeping up. And this year we were projecting similar because, uh, you know, we had a lockdown in Germany from what November through May. So we brewed too much, anticipating similar behavior to, to 2020. The difference being is that 2020, the weather was nice, was much nicer. So people were out in March and April outdoors. And as soon as Germans can go outdoors, they just drink more beer. Even if it's not in a beer garden or a, a pub or whatever, they're drinking more in their garden. So we had, we, we built up too much stock in the lagering cellars and we had some Hellas in the cellar that was uh, 60, between 60 and 70 days old in maturation, so not including primary fermentation. And uh, yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I would say our beer reaches its peak. The Hellas reaches its peak at uh, around. I mean, up to forty days, it's fine. And once you get beyond forty days, it starts to lose its luster a bit. It, it gets a bit tired and a bit dull, and it's not as bright and as lively. Uh, so we were very careful. We were blending 70, 70 day old beer with 21 day old beer to hit 30 days, 35 days or whatever to make sure that that beer stayed nice and bright. Ah. And I, well, I, so, so for the Hellas, it depends on the gravity. So like if, um, anything below 12 up to six weeks is, you know, so 42 days is perfect. The Pilsner, on the other hand, uh, if it gets another week, 49 days, perfect, even eight weeks. And then the higher gravity beers, we have a beer called the Gold, which is sort of like a Mjetsen. It's um, eight weeks is just fine. That's actually eight weeks is optimum. That's uh, that's 63 days. And then, uh, well, we have a bulk beer, for example, a Christmas beer. Those, uh, I think, 70 days is just right. And actually, why? To get back to the whole lagering thing, I, you know, you asked about geometry and I got off on a tangent. Um, but the geometry of, uh, the, from the lagering maturation vessels is also very important. So we, I, I think our best beer comes out of uh, horizontals and they're, they have four meters in diameter. That has been limited by the fact that, uh, that's how high the, the bridges are in the Autobahn. So when they're coming from the manufacturer on the tra- on the trailer, the tank and then a little bit of clearance, you know, you have about five meters. So I can get a four meter tank onto a truck and still get under the bridge without it scratching the bridge. But so say four meters and 13 meters or whatever in length is just right. So we, we try to stay under four meters. And, and if they're, if they're, if they're vertical vessels, um, you know, we try to hit a, a height to diameter ratio of, um, of one to one. So we're never higher than four meters which I think is also important. It's also makes it easier in, in the carbonation. The secondary fermentation is a natural carbonation process. So you don't have a layering of, you know, of different CO2 levels uh, throughout the tank. There, the natural convection turns it over enough. You know, if it's wide enough to get enough natural convection, it's all the same CO2 content throughout the vessel. So mm-hmm. I've, didn't want to forget to talk about that. No, it's perfect. I love that the geometry is dictated by uh, <laughs> by the freeway, by the highway. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the ideal geometry yeah. because it fits. It makes it to yeah. the brewery. It goes under the bridge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Matt, I remember when you were building uh, your brewery years ago, you had said that to me too, that you had these tanks coming that you guys were like, I don't know, man. They might need a crane to lift them over the overpasses or something. You know? Yeah, you know they can del- deliver bigger vessels than that or wider vessels, but um, then all of a sudden your freight costs explode. Mm-hmm. You know, even if the even if the manufacturer is only 300 kilometers down the road, it could be that instead of 5,000 euros for freight to get the tank right from there to to your place. It might be twenty thousand or, or thirty thousand. Sure, because they yeah. have to take, they have to avoid bridges. Right? Yeah, so many things that are, are prohibitive. You know, brewer and, and uh, you have to think about. Yeah. <laughs> well, Matt, you you were right that we were gonna we were gonna get it to a point where we just have to do another show with Eric because we could definitely talk more longer <laughs> brewing. And I oh, just this, really this appreciate has been really wonderful. And and you know we did cover 
the majority of, of what I planned on covering. And I could sit here and just listen for, for a couple more hours. I think there's a bunch yeah. of detail that we could dig into later. So maybe we have to have you on the show at a later date, but yeah, man, it's, yeah. it's just amazing. And for the listeners out there, I just I encourage you to seek these beers out, especially if you're interested in lager brewing. I think it's just so critical to taste kind of those foundational, well-made beers. And as you heard, I mean, Eric has a philosophy and a program that's well-tested starting from raw materials all the way through. So yeah, it was just a pleasure to listen to all of this. And thank you so much for joining us. It was amazing. Oh, it was a pleasure being, being here talking to you. It was great seeing you also just virtually, but um, yes, soon, uh, soon in Belgium, we're in, in uh, Germany. So. Correct. It's uh, Schoenram Brewing Company. Uh, Schoenram Brauerei, I guess, is probably is closer. Uh, if you want to go seek out this beer the next time, you can enter Bavaria, like I can't wait to do. Again, I will absolutely be coming to seek out your beer, Eric. And yeah, I did have, I did have two questions I wanted to sneak in. Sure, yeah, yeah, quick yeah. answers. I'm sorry, man. Yeah. I just had to. They just kind of came to me as we were talking. And one of them was the can craze in the U.S., Will German brewers and maybe more specifically German beer drinkers, consumers, do you think they'll ever jump on to the, the, from the, the traditional bottle that, that we are so used to in with German beers to the, to this can craze that's happening? Well, I think, uh, well, the brewers would love to. Okay. And probably the consumers as well. Um, the can used to be a big, bigger thing in Germany. Um, but every can has 25 cent deposit on it. So. Okay. That's a bit prohibitive. You know, and and people have to take the pot, the cans back. So every retail outlet that sells cans has mm. to take cans back, even if they don't sell those cans and pay twenty five cent deposit. So you can't okay. also destroy the can before you have to bring the can back as a whole unit. You can't crush it. It's not recyclable in terms of how many pounds or kilos or whatever. So that's a bit a bit of a problem that. Uh, that well, we kind of created ourselves because uh, the small independent brewers were against the can because it was littering the countryside and okay. bottles are returnable. And, you know, it's, it bottles, of course, for if you're a regional brewer like we are, makes sense because uh, the carbon footprint is much lower. Mm-hmm. And this is even before the time when people were talking about carbon footprint. But, uh, you know, in Austria, and a lot of breweries can, and so we're, I'm hiking in the regions just south of us, you know, on the border between Bavaria and Austria, and you see guys, see guys from our village uh, at the top of the mountain drinking Austrian beer out of the can. I think, God damn it, you know. <laughs> and I'm, well, I, I, you know, I, 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 I slept the bottles to the top of the mountain, you know. Right, <laughs> right. But uh, we, we'd love to, and and it used okay. to be also that the the can was uh, steel. So the body was steel and the lid was aluminum. And now I think it's all aluminum. So it might be a lot easier to recycle as well. So okay. um, I'm all for, I'm all for the can. It's also because you don't get the light. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's even bigger than, than, than heat or temperature. I think the, the light factor yeah. really kills the beer. Okay. I'm glad I asked because I honestly was in my head, the, the answer had everything to do with tradition and you really, it's not, it's, it's all of these other factors that, that are so important. Right. Yeah. So, okay. And then the other one I just got to sneak into, and I'm mostly doing this map because both you and I on different occasions have talked about hazy beer by saying, Oh yeah. You mean like German beer, like Keller beer, <laughs> like, like a Hefeweizen, like in other words, 
hazy beer, which I'm, I'm drinking now, you know, is, is ah, the new, yeah. is talked about the new thing here in the U S yeah, yeah. it's really, it's not a new thing got one but, right here. <laughs> and you've, and you've got one and you've got one right there. So my question for you is not the normal question. Like, do you like it? What do you think? I, what I actually want to know from you is what a German perception is of, of our hazy beer. Do you also joke like we might and say, oh yeah, they just figured out how to make Hefeweizen with hops. Like, is it <laughs> to see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's funny because if I think back to the to the early '80s, you know, when I first got interested in beer, and and the new breweries are pop, popping up everywhere. That was one of the things uh, that people were critical of of these uh, brew pubs or or microbreweries. Yeah. I mean, nobody talked about uh, craft breweries back then, but microbreweries or whatever is that they were so hazy and and uh, it looks a bit dirty and it looks a bit like homebrew and that. And it took almost three decades to clean the beer up and get them bright. And now everybody's making them dirty again. I think it's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. And, and, and that was actually one of the big problems. Um, uh, you, you mentioned Eric Warner. Um, you know, it went to buy Stefan on that. You know, we were in the same class and he came back to, to the U.S. and his passion was Weissbier. And he, he brought Weissbier onto the market in Denver and then. 1992 and people were like, you know, what the fuck? This is hazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ahead of the time. So he was ahead. Yeah. 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 And, uh, the Germans, the funny thing is now is, um, you know, haze is, um, a lot of the wheat beers are no longer bottle conditioned or tank conditioned and they run them through a centrifuge and flash pasteurizing. The flash pasteurization cracks the protein and creates a permanent haze. And a classically traditionally made Weissbier at room temperature in, in, in the liquor store is going to be bright. Mm, and, you know, mm-hmm. it just has a, it has a sediment on the bottom and you got to cool it. And you might get a little bit of a chill haze when you cool it down in the fridge, but you got to agitate the, the sediment and dump it in the beer to make the haze. So right. it's, we got, we got two factions in Germany right now. We have the, we live close to the border. So. And the Austrians are making a lot of Fikubia, so Kellabia, mm-hmm. but it's all, it's all flash pasteurized, uh, non-bottle conditioned. It's not even, you know, it's, it's just chill haze. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's, really? it's, 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 uh, it's a denatured protein. It's, it's ah, a nightmare. Okay. So, you know, we, we've filled, we put Fikubia, so un, you know, unfiltered beer into the keg and properly Fikubia is like, you know, so we, we have our fest, which is eight months or eight weeks in the lagering tank before we put it in the keg. And it's basically a bright beer. It just has a very slight haze. And the Austrians, because we're right on the border, come to the beer garden and drink it and say, ah, this is not a chiku. <laughs> yes, it is. That's a real chiku. It not, actually not is. <laughs> not the orange juice you guys are drinking, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> that's funny <laughs> so, all right well thank you for tackling yeah. that for me i just was very curious like i said because matt and i have both joked about uh you know haze haze and beer not being a new thing really just sort of how we do it now might be a bit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy to see it uh see it back because uh, it was like i remember coming you know come back every year once or twice and you know the beers were getting brighter and brighter it's like oh finally they figured it out Right. And then, and then all of a sudden it's like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But in our defense, I feel that at the same time, we're experiencing a lager beer a renaissance among craft brewers too. And I'm that's really great. enjoying great. 
American lager craft beer. And, and I'll be honest, uh, in my career, that wasn't always the case. Early when I started this back in 05, you know, it was pretty hit or miss when I was going around trying craft lagers. And now oh, yeah, I'm finding yeah. that craft brewers here are have just really learned the techniques to make some great beer now. So we are see we're simultaneously, it's not as popular, of course, but I think, right, Matt, we're seeing this lager resurgence. Yeah, and I, it, it, we're at that point now where enough brewers are making great beers that we just need to get oh, yeah. consumers because I think there will be, the pendulum always swings you know, back to drinkability and balance and, and there are brewers that are on point. And I think that's why this discussion of lager was, was rather timely because there's so many curious brewers out there who are refining their art. So yeah. yeah. Awesome. No, I think, I think it's, I think it's great. It's exciting. And yeah, well, when all this started, you know, the whole beer renaissance back in the, in the late seventies and, and early eighties, uh, of course the, the, People's perception of lager, not many people had traveled to Europe, I would say. And, and of course, uh, you had just the industrial lager beers, which still have their, their place. But, um, so people had an idea that lager was just watery fizz. And, um, that's why ales or top fermented beers they just struck a chord with people. It's like, oh, wow. So beer can taste like this as well. But mm-hmm. it's great to see people getting back to the subtleties. And I mean, yeah, that's one of the great things about lager is it's, uh, very subtle and, and very, you know, and, and very delicate and, and actually diff- difficult to replicate time and time again. And that's, uh, that's something that any, I think, consumers or, and drinkers expect from a beer. They know it's a natural product, but they want it to be consistently reliable or reliably yeah. consistent all the time. And it's, and it's getting there. I had mentioned to you before the show, Matt, I'm not sure you were on here yet, but I was having a Kolsch from, from Heater Allen. Which they just called Das Beer. <laughs> it's the name of this course. <laughs> but great lager breweries, Heater Allen is. And um, yeah, of course, Pivo always been one of my favorites. Uh, great one, yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> all right, Look guys. Well, Eric, again. thank you so much once again for being on the show with us and spending all this time on your vacation. Safe travels home. And we wish you luck there. But yeah, thanks for just sharing all this great information with us. I appreciate it. You bet. Well, thanks for having me. It was a, it was a real pleasure. You got I hope it. To see you soon. Yes, sir. All right, Matt. We'll be back for another episode soon. I'm not even sure what we have coming down the pipe next, but I know that we're going to talk to some of the other brewers at Firestone Walker soon. So we've got more for you on the Beer Before Glory podcast with Matt Bernaldson from Firestone Walker. I'm Justin Crosley. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time. Take care of yourselves and your beer. Cheers. Cheers.